So um, today uh, we're going to continue in our series on Ecclesiastes. If you've been following the last two weeks, um, Anthony has led us through 12 verses. Um, and today I'm going to go through two chapters. So there you go. Um, but uh, before I get started, though, I wanted to uh, share with you, I, you may or may not have known, I, but prior to doing this, I was actually a stand-up comedian for 15 years. That's what I did as a job. Um, and so comedy is something that I've always appreciated. I've always kind of followed. Um, and, and I want to share a clip with you of something I just find really fascinating. Um, it's, I don't know if you remember this, if you're old enough to remember this. Jerry Seinfeld was a comedian who um, had a TV show. Uh, it's, it's in syndication. You can pretty much find it at any time of day probably on TV now. Um, but, but he left that show back in the 90s. Uh, but another thing he did when he left was he did something that was unheard of for stand-up comedians. He got rid of his whole act. Like, he just threw it in the garbage. No more am I going to tell the jokes that I've been telling that made my career. I'm throwing it out. And that, for comedians, is terrifying. Like, even if you have new jokes, you still keep some of the stuff because you know it's good and it's been worked out. But he decided, I'm going to get rid of it all. And he actually made a film, a documentary, where he uh, gets rid of his act and he goes back to comedy clubs and it kind of follows him along and he... He's interviewing or speaking with different comedians. And so the clip I'm going to show you uh, features him talking to Jay Leno. Um, now, he, those of you who don't know, Jay Leno was the host of The Tonight Show. For those of you who are older, that's the guy who followed Carson. Um, those of you who are younger, he was kind of before Fallon. And for those of you who are my age, he's the guy who messed up Conan's career. Um, but <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and we normally don't show a clip. But like I said, this is kind of fascinating to just hear this conversation between these two men. We're, we'll show it now. I could never do what you did. I could never give it away. Because you always have it in the back. You know, you always think of your act as like... Yeah, but you you're a comic, your act feeds you. It pays the rent. Yeah, but Jay... It's like my exercise. Not at this I, point. I, I walk two miles on stage. But see, I've never touched a dime of my financial money. I live on the money I make as a comedian. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. Do you do don't it? know? Think about, about it. it keeps you centered. If, like, if I get fired tomorrow... I know. This is, I know. If you're a custodian, if you wind up as a custodian, you're still living with this fear that you're going to wind up working as a garbage man. <laughs> you remember you... Yeah, I know. He, he believes it. He, I swear. He but that's it. what keeps you going. No, it doesn't. Yes, yes. Idiotic. Stop it already. I remember one time he had a meeting in some office, and you were talking to the security guard for some reason while you were waiting for the elevator, and you're telling me, you know this guy? He was Jackie Kay back in, you know. Oh, I remember that guy. Yeah. I know who that was. I know. Yeah, yeah. It was a guy that had two series. You believe that this is going to happen. You don't really believe. But it just keeps The only you. thing that keeps you going is like, to what me, it's like, I want you to do that great story with your parents in the VCR. Right, right. That keeps me going. Boy, right. I would love to have a story that long. Well, that, I, that I enjoy doing me. the act more than I enjoy doing anything. For example, you said to me, you can have all the money that you would make and not do the act. Or do the act. I do the act. You like telling people a joke that they haven't heard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun telling jokes. Right. Remember, we used to talk about how it's more fun than anything else you do. So that's why you run around and do the act all the time when you're not doing the show. Yeah, if you don't do it, you don't have it. Right. <laughs> but it's fascinating. He never took any of his money from The Tonight Show. Like, he, kept, he keeps it all in the bank. And what he lives on is on the weekends when he's not doing The Tonight Show, he goes and performs at comedy clubs. And that's kind of the money he lives on because he has this fear 
that one day it's all going to be gone. He even shares the story about um, uh, he, he came across a security guard at NBC Studios, and the guy who was a security guard back in, like, the 50s had two shows. Like, he had, like, shows that he was doing, and, you know, it all kind of went away. And so Leno lives with this fear um, that it's all going to go away, and, and he's recognizing what we've been talking about in Ecclesiastes, which is that in, in any moment, his money and career can all be done. Everything that we try to produce or strive after will fade away and be gone. Now, unfortunately for Leno, I don't know if you heard it, but he's basically, um, he seems to have put faith in his act or his work. He says, my, you know, the act feeds you. It, it, it pays the, the bills. And um, he even says at the end there, if you don't do it, you don't have it. So he even recognizes the act is fleeting, yet that's what he's, he's grasping onto. Um, this conversation between Seinfeld and Leno is, is basically kind of amusing over what uh, we've heard from Ecclesiastes last week. Um, the things of this life are vanity. Now, if you haven't been here, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes has shared with us in chapter 1 that the things of this world are what he calls vanity. And what he means by vanity is that these things are, are like a vapor or fleeting. Um, you know, I, I think Anthony used this illustration. I had a seminary professor who did the same thing. It's kind of like if you're outside in a cold day and you breathe, you have that kind of condensation in front of you. If you were trying to grasp onto that, it's impossible. It's fleeting. Um, and that's what the writer's uh, trying to get across here. So today, we're going to look at how the preacher of Ecclesiastes came to this conclusion that all is vanity. And he, he came to this conclusion through his own quest for truth and meaning with human uh, wisdom and experience. Now, the passage we're going to look at today, the preacher shares some harsh realities. There are things pointed out here that some of us, uh, for some of us, it goes against everything we've thought to be true and how the world works. For some of us, there are things that we've been denying. And for some of us, maybe it's just things that we haven't considered it in the way that the preacher is presenting it. But before we jump in, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for allowing us to be able to come here this morning and worship you. Lord, I am blessed as we um, corporately get to sing your praises. Lord, as we confess our sins and as we hear the assurance of pardon, Lord, what your, your son has done for us, Lord Jesus. I pray right now that you would guide my words. I pray that you would open all of our hearts and minds um, and that your spirit would just be um, moving in this place this morning. I just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to jump right in. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to Ecclesiastes 1 and just kind of keep it there. We're going to be, we're going to be plowing through there today, and so you'll, you'll want to keep that open because I'm not going to be able to cover all of the verses. But um, starting off, not doing anything, it's definitely on. I made that mistake last time. Okay, so there we go. All right. Um, Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 14 says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. So in the, in the Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, the preacher basically introduces us to his thesis. And in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 2, he gives his credentials and then the method as to how he got there. 
While there is some debate as to who wrote Ecclesiastes, it's clear in this passage that it's from Solomon's perspective. Solomon was king over Israel in Jerusalem. He had great wisdom. And we'll see in chapter 2, there there are many things he built and amassed. And you can actually follow all the details of this uh, in the beginning of 1 Kings. And actually, in in 1 Kings chapter 3, God appears to Solomon in a dream and tells him to ask for whatever he wants. And Solomon asks for wisdom, and God is pleased to give it to him. And, And he responds with this. He says, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So when the preacher says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He's, he's not making that up. Um, you know that he is credible. God has already told him that no one before or after shall be like him, and that no other king will ever compare with him. So after giving his credentials, he, sa- he shares uh, what he set out to do. So in verse 13 he says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He applied his heart to seek and to search. And that, what that means is he's applied his whole being. The terminology here denotes that he applied his entire mind, will, and emotions to seek and search out meaning and purpose in life here under heaven. And how did he seek and search? Well, it says he did so by wisdom. But I think it's important to note here that this wisdom seems to be um, an earthly wisdom, not necessarily a divine wisdom that comes from the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And yet, in this journey that the preacher takes us on, there is no mention of the fear of the Lord. Actually, he barely talks about God. Um, he, he actually says, I and my, over 40 times throughout this passage. Phil Riken, uh points out that here, wisdom refers to what people can learn about the world without special revelation from God. Because God created the world and everything in it, any truth we discover is a divine gift. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. But the question still needs to be asked, how far will human wisdom take us? Will information bring transformation? Can it lead us to everlasting life? And I would say the preacher says no. His conclusion in verse 18 is, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more he learned, the more questions he had. The more he learned, the more he realized the futility of so many things. I don't know about you, but vexation is one of those words that I see and use, but don't really know the meaning, so I looked it up. It says, vexation means the state of being annoyed, frustrated, or worried. And this is where amassing so much wisdom seemed to lead him. And why is all of this so troubling? Well, I think he sums it up with this proverb in verse 15. He says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. There are broken things in this world that cannot be fixed. No matter how much we have, no matter how much we work, no matter how much we understand, there are things that cannot be straightened. There will always be things that are lacking. Once again, Riken says, um, We suffer long-standing family conflicts, estrangement between former friends, 
wrongs done to us by someone in power, disease or disability, our own moral failings, the accidents we cause, the list goes on and on. There is always something in life we wish we could bend back into shape. And sometimes our efforts to do so actually end up making things worse. Happy Father's Day. Um, <laughs> if you, uh, I grew up in the 90s, and so if you grew up in the 90s, you may remember. Uh, we didn't have Twitter. Uh, we didn't have social media. And so all of our important messages that we had to get out there came on our T-shirts. Um, and you may remember... We had, a, uh, we had this thing called No Fear. There was a No Fear brand of t-shirt. And on it, it just had these like crazy sayings that like, so here's one. Second place is the first loser. No fear. Like, okay. Um, all men are great in their dreams. Reality just narrows the competition. No fear. Pretty sure this is why my generation wants to give trophies to everyone. We've been so scarred by whatever these messages are. Um, I think I owned one. I couldn't find a picture of it. I owned a t-shirt, a no-fear shirt that said, you don't greet death, you just punch him in the throat repeatedly as he drags you away. I had no clue what that means. Um, but as I was reading this passage, I, was, I actually did think of this one, which is, he who dies with the most toys still dies. I, Solomon may have written that one. I don't know. Um, because that's kind, of, that's kind of where the preacher lands. Um, in, in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he describes to us the process by which he investigated everything under the sun. Um, he describes how he sought pleasure and material possessions. He sought out wisdom and folly. And then finally, he sought to see if his work could bring meaning and purpose to life. So in chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And that he did. Um, he goes on to describe uh, in verse 2 that he sought laughter and pleasure, but he comes to find that laughter is foolish and pleasure is not of any use. They're like everything else. They are fleeting or vanity. Now, some of you may be thinking, but Dave, laughter is good for the soul, and sometimes I just need a good laugh. And I get it. I was a comedian. Um, but laughter is great, but the problem is it's a, it's a temporary thing. Um, it's fleeting. Oftentimes, we seek laughter as a distraction or an escape. Other times, we may use it to tear others down or build our own cynicism. If you research comedians, you'll find that a lot have depression, anxiety, and addictions. Um, actually, my uh, wife was invited to speak one time at a comedy conference I was at, and they wanted her to come talk about the business side of things. And she opened by sharing how a lot of times when people found out that her husband was a comedian, they would respond with, oh my gosh, your household must just always be laughing. It must be great. He must. It just must be the... the most fun ever, because he's always cracking you up. And she goes, actually, he's very insecure and sad a lot. <laughs> and all the comedians in the room laughed, because they're all like, yep, <laughs> yes, we are. Um, and that's, that's the thing. Comedy can be a great truth teller and a great release, but it can also be a defense mechanism or a distraction. In the end, it's, it's just vanity. It may make us feel good for a moment, but then after the laughter is done, we're just going to go right back to whatever emptiness led us to seek it. And the same was true as the preacher sought wine to cheer his body. It's interesting to note that in verse 3, he experiments with wine, yet, he says, his heart still guided him with wisdom. So I guess he's assuring us here that he didn't go on a bender to lose his mind. Um, he wanted to keep his head clear enough to be able to evaluate and process the effects of wine in order to make his hypothesis. 
And to be honest, this is either a little, a little bit of a nerd vibe here from Solomon, or someone was like, Solomon, dude, what are you doing? And he was like, it's all good, it's science. <laughs> then Solomon went on to build great houses. He planted his vineyards, and basically he amassed a bunch of stuff. He literally had it all. In verses 9 through 11, he says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had experienced in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, he got all he could then, but he doesn't understand, like, there's so much more we have now where we can really reach some, we have the internet, we have indoor plumbing, like whatever, like that he didn't have. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, not, it's still the same. In, in 2005, after uh, winning his third Super Bowl, Tom Brady said in an interview with 60 Minutes, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this, isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. No matter how much we achieve or amass, we realize that it's still not enough and that it doesn't fulfill us the way that we thought it might. So now the preacher turns to wisdom and to foolishness, and he says in verses 13 through 14, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. So the preacher admits here that there seems to be more benefit when you live wisely than foolishly. The problem, though, is that in the end, the outcome is the same. Death. Death comes for both the wise and the foolish. Anthony talked about this last week. The wise and the foolish will come to an end, and both will eventually be forgotten. Um, my dad, um, for all accounts I've heard, was a uh, kind, compassionate, and Jesus-loving man. And at the age of 26, he died of leukemia. My stepdad, on the other hand, was an abusive, manipulative alcoholic who lived into his late 60s. Not only did both come to an end, but one seemed to unfairly live uh, longer. And when you take the time to stop and think on these sorts of things, it's easy to understand why the preacher in verse 17 says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. The preacher then goes on to describe his work. And in verses 18 through 23, surprise, surprise, he comes to conclusion that this too is vanity. Once again, death seems to render it all meaningless. You will die, and everything you've worked for will be left to someone who ultimately did not work for it. Not only that, they may not be wise and could possibly squander it all away. Everything you worked for will be gone. Now, this may be rocking some of you right now, because the American dream says you work hard, you gather and save as much as you can, you provide for your family, and you leave your children a legacy that they can carry on. So how can that be bad? Well, he says in um, verses 22 through 23, I think I jumped ahead. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? 
For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is so much that is literally out of our control. It only takes a market crash, downsizing, a sudden death, a global pandemic, or as already pointed out, a foolish heir, and everything you've worked for will be gone. No matter how much you enjoy your job in the beginning, when your work becomes your life meaning and purpose, it will fill your days with sorrow and ultimately be a vexation because what you are grasping onto is fading away. So what do we do? Well, the preacher appears to make a hard turn here in verse 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So wait a minute, preacher. You just spent almost two chapters telling us how meaningless eating, drinking, and working is. And now you're telling us that there's nothing better for us to do than to find enjoyment in them. But notice the context change here. God has now appeared into the picture. One author I read pointed out that Martin Luther called the end of Ecclesiastes 2 a remarkable passage, one that explains everything preceding and following it. It is the principal conclusion, Luther said. In fact, it's the point of the whole book. What the preacher is presenting in these verses isn't a contradiction, but it's the point. He's walked us through his search that has been purely conducted at a human level. When we pursue pleasure, wisdom, and work to bring us meaning and purpose by themselves, they will disappoint because they are just as temporary as our physical bodies are. It is only through God that we can start to make sense of this life. And the New Testament fleshes this out even further. Instead of seeking all that is done under the sun for fulfillment or meaning, Hebrews 11.6 says that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. As for wisdom, James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then as for possessions, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think sometimes people can zero in on Solomon's assessment that it is all vanity and just assume that everything is like bad and worthless. Um, they say we should separate ourselves from the world and become monks or something. Um, anything that's done, uh, not done in the church or blatantly, is not blatantly ministry, then it's a waste of time. But that's not really the message here. Um, Douglas Wilson says, the gift of God does not make the meaningless go away. The gift of God makes this vanity enjoyable. Work, pleasure, materials, and wisdom are not bad things when we understand that they are gifts from God. It's when we treat them as if they are the gift givers instead of the gift that it becomes a problem. The things of this world are vanity or vapor, and it's not meant to be held onto for purpose and meaning. Like I said, you can't hold on to something that's a vapor, and if you try, you're just going to get frustrated as it disappears. If you understand these things for what they are and don't keep a tight grasp on them, then you may actually be able to appreciate and properly utilize these fleeting things. I love Skittles. It's my favorite candy. Um, there's a jar on my desk right now. Um, big fan of Skittles. 
Uh, and, and their purpose, honestly, the only purpose they serve is to taste good. Like, that's, that's it. Um, you can't use them for anything more. And believe me, I've tried. Um, if I were to just try to say, hey, I'm skipping lunch today. I'm not really, though. I'm going to eat Skittles. That's not good. Um, they cannot be used for sustenance. It's, it's just not their purpose. And as long as I keep that in track, do you hear me, kids? Um, as long as I keep that in track, um, then they're good. But if I don't, they can become really bad. And honestly, um, some of us may be thinking that, well, Dave, what if I'm not enjoying these gifts? Like, what if these fleeting things are not an enjoyment to me? As a matter of fact, they're bad. So, for instance, if I ate a ton of Skittles, I'm going to get sick. Or if I open the bag and they're all just yellow, um, that's the worst. Now, I know some of you out there might be like, oh, yellow is my favorite, and I'll pray for you. But, um, but yeah, sometimes we may feel like that. Um, oftentimes, our work is hard and frustrating. Oftentimes, our stuff, our possessions, they don't satisfy. And there are things that just don't seem to be getting better. The preacher here isn't candy-coating anything. He is acknowledging the reality that life is hard. We live in a world where what is crooked cannot be straightened. And when we allow ourselves to recognize this, it actually points us to the fact that we need something beyond us. The preacher knew that without God, our strivings are vanity. What he was unable to see, that God would go even further than making this vanity enjoyable. God would send his son, Jesus Christ, into this world full of crooked things. Jesus would live wisely. He would enjoy the pleasures of life. He would work. And in the end, when death, which tried to make it all vanity, came for him, he conquered it on our behalf. Jesus hung on a crooked cross to make things straight. He came to fulfill what was lacking. So what does that look like for us practically? Um, Some of you may have heard me talk in the past. I I had an amazing grandmother um, who was just this amazing woman of God. Um, She loved God. She loved people. She was a prayer warrior. Um, And she ended up getting cancer. And for about three years as she went through that fight with cancer and chemo, she actually was amazing. Like, I would call her from my dorm and be like, Grandma, how are you today? And she's like, oh, I had chemo. And then I mowed the lawn. And then I went to church and made dinner for the kids at the kids program. And then I went to the adult rehabilitation center and taught classes to recovering drug addicts and alcoholics. And I was like, get some sleep. Um, but she just dove right in. Like, she, she loved people and loved God and said, here we go. Um, at the end, the cancer got into her blood and just spread throughout her body and, and was in her brain and got to a point where she really couldn't do anything. Um, hospice came in, uh, you know, kind of set her up well and even helped my grandfather a ton. Um, and Michelle and I were there, my wife, and we had to leave. And so literally the last thing my grandmother said to us as we were leaving was, I want you to go and tell everyone you know to pray for me. And I was like, okay, okay. like I don't... What am, I, what am I supposed to ask them to pray for? And she said, I just think it's cool that if someone goes to God to pray for me who normally wouldn't go to God, what a blessing in ministry that is that I still have. I was like, <laughs> When pain and suffering came and death wanted to bring all of my grandmother's strivings to an end, and tell her that it was meaningless. She, through the eyes of her Savior, understood that what was vanity was not worth holding on to compared to the eternity that she was entering. And not only that, while she had breath, she could glorify the one who gave her purpose, even in the midst of experiencing the vanity of physical life. 
There are things that are crooked or lacking in our lives. Sin, loneliness, hurt, disease, failing marriages, kids that resent us, whatever it is, whatever confronts us with the crooked condition that we are in, these things will show us the vanity of life. But God, God does not leave us in that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to not only show us what a true life of meaning looks like, but died and rose again so that we may truly live now and beyond death. The harsh realities of this world may not magically go away, but they no longer define or entrap us. They are vanity, but Christ is our eternity. He brings healing, reconciliation, and makes straight our hearts in situations that are crooked and lacking. If you find yourself today disillusioned with the fleeting things of this world, and maybe you find yourself at a place where you're asking that question, there has to be more than this. Jesus is your answer. He says in John 10 that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. All you need to do is acknowledge your need for him. Stop trying to find meaning in the gifts and go to the giver of life, Jesus. If you have any questions about this, I would love to talk with you and pray afterwards. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your love and your mercy and grace again. Thank you, Lord, that in um, the midst of all that seems to be slipping away, all that is vanity, the things that are so difficult, you do not leave us in that, Lord. Um, You do not leave us with things that are crooked that cannot be made straightened. Your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins and allows us to have new life, Lord Jesus. I pray for all those today who may be hurting and struggling, all those today who are uh, questioning everything and seeking more to life than what they've been finding. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts today, that you would work in all of our hearts and help us to understand more of who you are and to be able to let go of the things that are just meant to be enjoyed as gifts. I just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.